listen to you all. You've made fun of us for not talking enough about books, for not showing how learned, erudite, and smart we are, um, which if you know us, you know we're not. Well, tonight we're going to talk to Steve Dixon again, but we're going to talk about a book. We're going to talk about Keeping the Peace, his book about VMFA 251 during the Cold War. Steve, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing It's good well, to have you back you, on the podcast. Well, let's talk a little bit about history. So this is a shift from the last time we talked, which was about wargaming. So we know your background as a wargamer. Give us your background as an author. How did you end up writing a squadron history during the Cold War? Well, it started in 2013. Uh, there was, uh, when I served with the squadron in the 70s, uh, there's no history written of the squadron and they've been around since 1941. So in 2013, I applied for a grant with the USMC Heritage Foundation uh, saying I'd like to write the squadron history of World War II uh, from 41 to 45. Well, lo and behold, I got the grant. They said, tag your (laughs) in. Congrats, now finish it. (laughs) Yeah, and and talking with my uh, contact up there, he said, you, you applied for the grant at the right time because the, the Commandant of the Marine Corps had come down with an uh, order wanting all squadron right, histories right. updated. And I just happened to fall in right at that time. They tagged me, and three years later, VMO 251, um, Photo Recon became fighter duty, was published in 2016. So I applied for another grant to continue the history from – 46 to right. 91, got the grant, and the uh, book was finally published in uh, March of wow. this year, after about four or five years of writing it and fighting <laughs> yeah, COVID. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> it was a know, challenge. Nothing, uh, everyone thinks history is easy. You just get a bunch of sources, you sit back and you you take it all and you throw it together in a in kind of a soup sandwich and and out comes a book uh but reading through the book it, it's always funny to me where you can tell how much hard work went to having to dig into history that wasn't written down very well and i'll pick on our predecessors as marines uh the guys and you even bring it up in the book there was a time when command chronologies weren't mandatory and if nothing happened, they might not have taken very good records. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, that, that was I was I was surprised when I found out from the Marine Corps History Division that they weren't required unless the unit right. was in combat. But that finally changed in '65, where everybody had to file them once every. Yeah, six that months. was the bane of my existence as a young lieutenant. Congratulations, you're the command chronology <laughs> officer. Oh, thanks, XO. That's that's awesome. Yeah. 
Uh, they call them historians yeah, well, we, now. Yeah, there was there was no glory to it. It was congrats, you're the command chronology officer. Uh, here's your other crappy little jobs we're going to give you. Uh, you know, CGI oh, coordinator, yeah. so you get to coordinate the commanding general's inspections and all those. Yeah, the fun of being a boot lieutenant. Yeah. But anyway, enough about me. <laughs> Let's talk about your background on it. So obviously, you were in VMFA 251, so you've got a little bit of of background yes. with the squadron and, and a little bit of uh, skin in the game as as being a uh, a, a patchware of a of a T bolt. Uh, I won't sneer at that. I actually have a lot. I have a lot of friends that were T bolts. <laughs> a lot of good friends, so I, I can't say much. Uh, but uh, there's also a little bit of a kind of weighty responsibility, not just being a former squadron member, but realizing that you're writing something for you know the Marine Corps' history of this unit. Um, because strangely, and and I don't know why. The Marine Corps is this way. It's, it's probably tells you something about how administratively challenged we are. There are well-decorated and um, impressive units that have had almost nothing written about them uh, from their inception. So. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad to uh, finally have a chance to uh, yeah. fill in that yeah. hole. Well, I... I kind of chuckle a little bit because the the way you wrote the book, you obviously allude to what you've written previously with some of the World War II history about uh, VMO 251 and the things they did. Um, and then you obviously you cover some at the very end about uh, what happens after 1991. But the the period that you had to cover was both at, at times really interesting and at times excruciatingly boring. Uh, <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was training, 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 training yeah. for what yeah. if. How, how was that as a historian to, to dig through? Did you ever sit there and go, why did I bite off this large chunk of years? You know. Well, uh, I wanted to cover the Cold War, but like you said, I, there was times where I shook my head and said, how am I going to reword <laughs> this uh, umpteen million times? And, and uh Unfortunately, that's the way it was, and I just tried to do the best I could uh, with I, what I, I had. Chuckled cause I chuckled because I could tell that at one point where I think for the third time in a row, you're like, and during this period, the squadron had no mishaps, lost no aircraft, and, you know, and you're like, there's, yeah. there's nothing I can say. They did their job. They flew these exercises, yeah. these training missions, and did a good job, you know, so. Yeah, and as the, as the years progressed, the accidents kept falling off, which is a good thing. Uh, the safety programs that we alluded to in our previous right. podcast – kind of worked itself in and, and uh, now I'm working on the final years of the uh, a third volume of the squadron history it, oh, absolutely. even less and I think that's something a lot yeah. of people don't understand about especially naval aviation Navy and Marine Corps aviation and jet aviation in particular is how dangerous it was at the beginning and how there were some very specific uh policies or programs instituted that that helped that safety record uh, we used to laugh uh whenever we'd look at the statistics because of course you can always make statistics lie uh the navy was fond of overlaying their favorite programs with you know each one of the reductions in mishaps like at this point when we introduced you know naval operations standard procedures the natos program look how much the mishap rate dropped angled carrier decks it dropped here one of my safety school instructors showed the same slide and showed his career overlaid with it. And he's like, oh, look, when I became a lieutenant, the mishap rate dropped. Here I was promoted to major. The mishap rate dropped again, you know. So so you know, <laughs> statistics lie and liars use statistics or whatever the old saying is. But uh, it, it, I think it's a it's an interesting part of your book. And I, and I 
in a sense like this, and maybe it's because I was a safety officer and I'm a safety nerd. Um, but it was it was fascinating for me to go through and to look at the records of the mishaps and the lost aircraft and to really be able to see how that changed over time. Um, and how, yes, aviation mm-hmm. was still dangerous, but aviation did become safer. And whether through policy, leadership, whatever, uh, there there was a positive direction in the overall mishap rate um, because because it, it I mean it was horrific at the beginning of of jet aviation. Oh yeah, oh absolutely, absolutely, especially with the uh, Skyliners yeah. that they well, flew. Well, I, I did cow. get one laugh out of there because it reminded me of a lot of stories I'd heard. Was that when you see uh, the same pilot on there for multiple mishaps, and you realize, yeah, that was a different era. You could go crash a plane, and yeah. two weeks later, take it up again and crash it again, and you know, walk away. As long as you walked away from both of them, you know, who knows, you might still be in a flight status. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, there was a few that didn't. There, walk there away were, after the and that one. you know that is um, something a lot of people may not even realize about um, the early ages of of military of U.S. military aviation was that the op tempo was excruciatingly high, and there was not time to oh, learn yes. from your mistakes. And so, a lot of times, yeah, you might have come back and had a mishap, and you were back in the air within a day or or, or two days, uh, and you might not even know Absolutely. why you crashed the plane the last time. The instructor might have said something to you or your flight lead might have said, yeah, don't ever do that again. And that wasn't the causal factor. So, yeah, there's there's a number of, of aviators I saw in the book that listings with that, you know, they, they did not survive their second um, second time through with the mishap. So, um, but but that's that I think is part of the story of the Cold War that gets lost for a lot of people. Uh, as they think of the Cold War as mm-hmm. a lot of, they either think of, you know, the hot conflicts that were out there of Korea and Vietnam, uh, but they don't think about all the other carrier operations, uh, you know, high op tempo forward deployed operations uh, where there was no shooting, yeah. but there were people crashing and dying. And that was a was a, a right. definitely a tough part yeah. of the Cold War. Um, was it was it interesting to you to kind of dig into the the operations that you had not been a part of uh, for 251 and to get to see the the different things they were tapped to do? Well, I was, as the years progressed, the I found it interesting, uh, the equipment <laughs> changes, through, especially with the different, when they started flying MPQ missions in, um, right. in Korea. And they hadn't really been trained to do that, so they kind of learned yeah. on the fly, uh, flying those Sky Raiders. And I was talking to my old electrician, um, my work center boss, in our last reunion, and he, he knew fully well. He looked at me and said, MPQ missions? God, like those? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But uh, and, and, and they kept flying them, but they didn't really do a whole lot with it. I mean, granted, you had these radars guiding you to the target, but it didn't do any good if you couldn't see what right. the hell you were hitting. They still had to verify what you hit, but they couldn't do it 90% of the time because it was either in the dark or it was too too cloudy to yep. see what was going on. But they kept doing it. Uh, that's what they yeah. had to do. But that was one of the things yeah, I found interesting. I think interesting. there's a lot of people that don't even understand. I mean, they understand how like strategic bombing worked and, and how some of the later Vietnam attack missions kind of went on. But they, I think a lot of people don't always appreciate that as technology uh, advanced, there still were a lot of times in a sense we were flying and fighting blind. We might have had a fancier system, mm-hmm. but you still 
didn't know the effect of your attack or you had to have bomb damage assessment done later uh, in clear weather, good weather, um, and that you just went and flew the mission and you came back and there, there wasn't necessarily a, an emotional reward at the end of it that, hey, we hit the target. You're like, hey, uh, we dropped some bombs. We did a mission. We went oh, out right. and sorted. I mean, it's, it's like all the night fighter guys. We went out, we sorted. We, I think we shot some guys down. <laughs> Something blew up out there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's right. not the same yeah. as getting into a dogfight in the middle of the day. Yeah, well, I did find also another fact that um, reading uh, uh, Korean War history, especially in marine aviation, when they talk about 251, they, basically it's like they struck targets, you know, near the DMZ <laughs> uh, at the time. Well, they did, but they also struck a lot of targets in North Korea in those last several weeks of the war before the armistice was signed. And uh, so they had targets all over the place they were hitting uh, at that time, which I found interesting. But again, didn't really yeah, know what yeah. they were hitting. And uh, there's there's yeah. a lot of parts of tactical aviation that are you know even that way where people are like, yeah, we hit a truck park if it's you know Vietnam, if it's uh, Operation Southern Watch, they're like we hit a cable repeater, I think. If uh, if it's yeah. you know yeah. Iraqi Freedom, they're like, yeah, we hit some tanks and revetments, I think. <laughs> you know, and so there may mm-hmm. not there may not be right. a uh, necessarily a knowledge of specifically what you went out and you hit. It, We've talked about it in the podcast before, you know, my background as a, as a, as we talked about last time, a big A little F guy, words mean things. And I always tell people, aviators absolutely suck at bomb damage assessment. I don't really know what I damaged. I know I dropped some bombs at this location and I can tell you bomb hit assessment. I can tell you something blew up and something was pouring black smoke, but I don't necessarily know what it was or well, how it much was. I damaged it. I don't know. You know yeah. Was it destroyed? Yeah. It was smoking, you know? So, so it's, uh, yeah. it's interesting how I, I, and it's probably mostly from the Gulf war, uh, Gulf war one and the perceptions thereof and, and video games where people are like, Oh yeah, you're going to know immediately if you destroy the target. I'm like, nah, it's not that way. <laughs> right. more, yeah. more than once I dropped my yeah. bombs. I'm like, did they die or did they go high order? Did I, did that actually work? You know? So it's, uh, being a historian, I'm sure you've you found a lot of times there were inconclusive mission reports that it was hard to really characterize what the squadron had done because um, just yeah, yeah there was nothing just there, nothing and, there. and there was no follow up yeah. intel or BDA yeah. done. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was tough. So I did the best I could with the information I had. What made it even tougher was uh, most of the places that I had to go to for research or contact were all closed yeah. because of COVID. <laughs> so, okay, well, also most of my research had to be yeah. done over the internet and uh, and you got to be oh, careful yeah. with oh, that. Yeah. Um, but I, I went with what I had at some point. I had to start writing. I could go forever uh, on research, but I had to say, no, I got to stop and, and start getting Absolutely. words to paper. So, how yeah. uh, how helpful was the Marine Corps in this? In the sense of, did they dump a bunch of command chronologies on you and say, "Good luck, go forth, do good things"? Or, <laughs> well, uh, I had a problem with locating the targets for the uh, for the Korean War missions. Uh, I found a map, and I'm used to the Army system since I, I, I'm involved a lot with my grandfather's Army division from World War II, so I, I can read their maps when it comes to their reports but the mapping system was different. So I had to, I had an idea. So I sent what I had to the USMC history division. Am I reading these maps right? About a day or two later, they came back and said, yeah, you got it right. And here's how it works. That's funny. 
So I said, shoot. So now that's how I was able to pinpoint the targets uh, with the map that I had and the targets and the, the coordinates given to me in the um, uh, uh, action reports. Yeah. Uh, those were thorough, uh, except for the type of targets they were hitting. They were right. rarely mentioned. Right. Yeah, they probably yeah. Know. I, I laugh because, yeah. uh, and I think I've told the story on the podcast before. You can get into so much trouble as into what you accidentally mistype in a mission report, or Intel mistypes for you, and they transpose coordinates, and suddenly everyone wants to accuse you of being the war criminal that bombed the you know orphanage off the target. You're like, no, I'm pretty sure I bombed the right target, and you go back and trace it back to being you know a, a mistyped coordinate in the report. Yeah. So there's there's human error and right, all that that right. that makes it tough on historians and and tough to to go back through and piecemeal mm-hmm. what really what really happened out there. And, you know, we, we've said it a number of times in the podcast is that I, I don't even think, even if you could get the whole accurate real story, that isn't the story you tell as historians. I mean, there's there's a point where you have to relate what people thought they did and what, you know, people thought their mission success was uh, and and vice versa, what was the impact to the enemy? Because sometimes it doesn't matter if you hit your intended target, whatever you hit might have been more valuable or might have been you know, that, that mm-hmm. central node of the enemy's uh, resupply convoy or whatever. So I think there's, there's a lot of times we search for that perfect answer as historians um, that, that in a sense kind of leaves everything cold. It doesn't really tell the rest of the story. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. But the, uh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I'm, at least I think in the third volume, I'll have a better perspective. There's a lot more people around uh, that have lived through the events in the last 28 years. So I got several interviews lined up that I'll be conducting with squadron commanders. That's over frightening. The years. I probably and know several fo- of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, and um, the uh, uh, I'll have more action to cover because they were involved right. in Bosnia. Uh, they were involved in Iraq uh, and involved in Afghanistan. So as I'm looking through the command chronologies when it comes to Afghanistan and Iraq, lo and behold, I find the annex is missing to the chronologies that listed missions, targets, bomb load, and results. <laughs> Those are all gone. I said, great. Well, I'll have to ask the, do you know where they are? <laughs> So in the meantime, I filed freedom of information requests to try to get this information from different sources. So we'll see yeah, what there, happens. There's, uh, it's interesting as stuff that was classified is now handled out and, and piecemealed out uh, for some of these things. It's it's funny how much of it's discussed and how much isn't. I know when you like read the official um, Marine Corps history for the initial operations in Afghanistan for uh, – uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. It's it's funny the things that are directly discussed in there, uh, and then there are things that there's almost no information put out about. So um, it's that yeah. will obviously be a challenge there. Uh, I do know that there's a lot of really good stories from 251 from from those eras. Uh, they they dropped for me in uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, so it's it it's kind of funny the uh, the different uh, interactions we all had out there because between them and uh, and uh, 314 uh, they gave a, a lot of good support to our our mu that was out there at the opening phases of uh, of operation enduring freedom so it's it, it's kind of funny the small world uh, that comes up when you you start having historians oh, dig yeah. through those mm-hmm. things you're like wait a minute i know this guy's name right <laughs> yeah. so that's good yep. 
Yeah, it, it is, is a small and world. the Marine Corps especially is yeah. is a super close you know close knit community. Uh, it's good to have Marines writing the history for Marines. I have uh, a couple other good friends that uh, that are not Marines that do a lot of the the aviation history and they're very good guys like joe copelman they're they're awesome uh with their uh, historical uh, perspectives of marine aviation but it's just so funny because there's times that that they call me up and they're like i really don't understand why you guys either a do something this way or b why did you write it this way and i have to explain either marine speak or you know the, the way we do business mm-hmm. which is sometimes counterintuitive um, yeah. for, for historians to dig through it. And, and of course, like everything else as Marines, we suck at admin. So we take terrible notes. So, <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, I find it surprising that I only have, they don't have the command chronologies for like 2018 to 2020. And that's the years when things were winding down and finally deactivated in April of 2020. So I have nothing basically for the last four or five years. So I'll just yeah, do the best yeah. I can. There, yeah. That's the tough thing is I think is as, squadrons get closer to deactivation and op tempos change and things that sometimes that that administrative stuff slips through the cracks and you end up not uh not having some key historical data that that's right before the squadron went into cadre status or, or was disestablished so it's sometimes it's unfortunate yeah. yeah i think the thing throughout the book um i've i found it pretty uh, heartening that they were able to accomplish all their missions despite all the problems that they had supply wise or personnel wise, they were, they found a way to get the job done. And I'm sure most other units did it too, but uh, that's what you had to do, but they were able to do it and they did it well. And I think that's one of the interesting stories of Marine aviation is, as you've lived, I've lived that there's, there's always a feeling that somebody else has had fewer airplanes, fewer maintainers and less gas to get the mission accomplished. So you better get it accomplished with all the stuff we gave you. <laughs> right. That, yeah. That the Marines will always mm-hmm. do more with less, but we also kind of kind of shame our own people into the fact that uh, people have done amazing work in the Marine Corps and uh, don't let anyone else down. Um, so there's there's obviously a, a lot of that in this book. There's there's a lot that um, I enjoyed flipping through and reading because even though it wasn't necessarily uh, you know super exciting stories of you know hey here's this mission they did over this location, um, there's a lot dealing with those challenges and and dealing with just how hard it is to manage a fighter squadron you know, with all the op tempo, with the forward deployments um, and changing of aircraft. Cause that's the other piece that you talk about in there is that, that that's, oh, yeah. that's mm-hmm. not an inconsequential yeah. piece. It's not like you just go read the manual the next day and go jump in an airplane. Although that's pretty much how they did it in the 1950s, <laughs> but there's, but, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, there, part, there yeah. are times that they would have to stand down the squadron. They'd send, you know, replacement pilots off somewhere and, and slowly get a trickle of, of new replacement pilots in uh, to figure out how to, how to employ the new aircraft. And that's, that that alone yeah, is a yeah, to me an, an yeah. interesting story, and maybe it's just because because you and I come out of that that kind of an era of transition of aircraft. Um, I think a lot of people think it's painless, it's simple, it happens overnight, and there's there's a lot a lot of work no. that goes on there. 
it takes time. Yeah, it yeah, it takes time. Yeah, yeah it does. I know. Does. Uh, watching the yeah. uh, F-35 transition in Beaufort as the F-18 squadron started to go away, there was a lot of a lot of interesting uh, things that went on. A lot of hard work to make that seamless. And I'm sure it was the same thing when it was the you know Phantoms to F-18s. Uh, no different because it was oh, yeah. it was culturally yeah. a different airplane. It was a, an electronic jet. It was not mm-hmm. a you know big hydromechanical beast that you could hit with a big hammer. Um, you know, so there's that story. I think is a is an interesting part of marine aviation is the the change in kind of the aircraft we flew and and what those um, how we maintained them. And you even allude to that a little bit in the, yeah. in the book, uh, just with with how things changed between the different aircraft and and the way the the challenges the squadrons had. Yeah, yeah, uh, I know that at my time uh, working on Phantoms from seventy six to seventy nine. There always seemed to be a yeah. part shortage, supply shortage. So you're always robbing Peter to pay Paul to get planes flying. And then the, then you had usually had your hangar queen sitting inside. And then once you got the parts in, you well, could get the hangar queen off out of the hangar. And I was laughing it, so. as soon as I, I, I read a, that section in the book. And, and I sat there and I'm like, oh, shocking. It's marine aviation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I'm sure a lot of other... Uh, not even it's probably everybody that it went through it seems yep. to be endemic i'm sure the f-35s oh, yeah. are going to have yeah. their well, share it's, of it it's too. unfortunately the yeah. it goes back to the mission accomplishment piece we can either sit around and wait for supply yeah. to find us the part or we can rip apart the hangar queen and that part may be three levels deep in the airplane and we're going to have to farm mm-hmm. a bunch of other things to get to that part but we're going to do it we're going to get those yeah. parts um so yeah 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 but the over the years, though, they, they did their job. And there was a couple instances, like I, I didn't know at the time when we, when 251 got sent to Iwakuni for a year in 77, I didn't realize at the time that it was the first deployment, uh, unit deployment program. And I didn't realize y'all were the so. first one either. And th- that was interesting to read. I was like, oh, wow, that that's new. Yeah, I didn't. Some, yeah. And I, and then, you know, we were originally supposed to be there six months, but I, of course, in the research, I found out there was engine problems. And that caused a delay, so we had to stay out there a year until they got that straightened <laughs> out. So, yeah, it was interesting to know, yeah, to find it, out. But that uh, that rough period after they run the, the won the Hanson Trophy in 69 and then into the early 70s, it's something, and I never could really pinpoint it, things went downhill with the squadron. And they lost two aircraft, the morale was low, and then that change of command and talking with Lieutenant Colonel Mavretic, who was in the middle of it and ended up taking over the squadron. Uh, boy, he had a, he had his work cut out for him to turn the squadron Yeah, I, I've, I've actually lived through that in a squadron. And uh, that's, that's a story that I think is one of those things you can't, you can't really do justice to as a historian because there's so much interpersonal interaction and so much um, behind mm-hmm. the scenes that goes on to take a squadron that's for whatever reason um, is having a, a rough go of it. Um, and when yeah. a new CEO comes in and, and kind of realizes where the problems are and either has to either a clean house or B just, you know, get, get people back in the game and back in um, back playing at the, at the highest levels uh, then, then there's just a lot that that you really can't write about that. You know, it, it would be purely an interview with one guy about what he thought he did right or wrong, and everyone else would be like, "Yeah, the guy was great," or "He was the worst CEO ever." You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
as one uh, pilot said, yeah, those weren't the best yeah. of times with yeah. the squadron. And, and yeah. I think most most Marine squadrons, you'll go through that at some time. I know you're looking back at my years uh, in 533, we were always uh, a really fortunate squadron. We always got stacked with super high quality Marines, super high quality aviators. Um, so we, we kind of cheated that, but we even had our, our dark days um, and especially had them right before uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. But it is also amazing with Marines that you can change the leadership of a squadron and it will change the performance overnight. Uh, and it's it's something about mm-hmm. Marines and Marines respond to a challenge. They respond to from the front kind of leadership. And you put those people in a squadron and stuff gets done, you know. So it's yeah. it's, it's good yeah. to read about that in the book and, to, and also to read about the fact that I, I guess it's – it's good for me to to read and realize that squadrons had rough times too. That even you know, I I may make fun of two fifty one, but two fifty one is is one of those really high quality squadrons that uh, me as a D guy, I've always looked up to them as single seat guys um, because they've always helped me out. They've always been at the top of their game. But it's good to read a history where you realize, hey, they had years they struggled too. You know, they had times that that things mm-hmm. did not go their way for whatever reason, um, and yeah. that that. Yep. All squadrons go through that in their history, um, and the good ones pick up the yep. pieces and go on. Well, uh, 251 did. Uh, they had Matt Reddick that turned things around, and uh, he held it for about a year and a half and then uh, passed it on to the next commander, and he carried forth with the same program, and they worked yep. themselves yep. out of a hole. Well, what are some of your favorite stories there? I mean, obviously, it probably was fun to go back as a historian and and hear the rest of what was around your time frame, because like you alluded to, the, the changes to the unit deployment program and and bringing, uh, you know, aircraft over uh, for the first time. What what were some of the other things that either were an eye opener or you were super excited to, to dig in on? Well, um, the first one, uh, I um, served with the Captain Clulo, uh, who was a Rio, but I didn't realize that he had been with the squadron for a couple years earlier than I had, uh, two or three years. And he was, and I touch upon it in the, in the book where he was involved in an accident in Texas, nearly killed him. Pilot lost control of the aircraft in a crosswind and, uh, and he crashed. I didn't know this. I found this all out trying to track him down to interview him and come to find out he's two down two two miles down the road from where I live. <laughs> he's in the same town. So I uh, went over to his house and we spent the afternoon. I interviewed him and he said, oh, I got something for you. And he came back with his uh, log book and the pictures of the scene of the accident yeah. about 20. Wow. And I'm going through it. And I, there's a few of them in the book that uh, are in there. And that plane was... Yeah. There was nothing left of that plan. It was a miracle those two guys survived. And he was he took about 18 months before he came back to the squadron to before yep. his leg healed up. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. I, it was it was just amazing. I did I didn't even yeah, know that that's, about that's it. always interesting to yeah. get the the back history on people that you that you have a personal connection with. I know there's been uh recently a couple times that I've been able to read unit histories or read um kind of event histories and and get stories on people that I'd flown with and, and people that I knew that I didn't know what they did before I joined the squadron. And it was never really talked about, you know, but people mm-hmm. that had flown in, in the Bosnia yeah. missions before me and, and things like that and to, to read some of the accounts and, and for me to laugh and go, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. And, and Colonel Mavretic, he uh, sent me a uh, picture 
of um, all the officers in the squadron at the time he was uh, relinquished command to the next uh, incoming uh, commander. And I'm looking at the pictures and I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy because they all went on to serve and we all went to yeah. Iwakuni yeah. together. So, and I, I tracked down one of them, uh, Popplesho, who who's in, uh, I think, Pennsylvania. And he was involved in a, a slight mishap in Iwakuni. And I'm wondering, a buddy of mine thought it was a nose wheel problem i said i, I don't think so and yeah. he had a bird strike and he came in so yeah so anyway it, it was fun tracking down some guys i hadn't heard from in 30 yeah, 40 that's, years that's cool i think we're spoiled yeah. these days uh with the way social media is because for me it's funny i i still stay in touch with a lot of the uh the marines that i was in the squadron with both officer and enlisted and and it's just funny because uh-huh. i i now realize that if any one of us wants to go back and and try to put things together contacting people isn't going to be the hard part. <laughs> yeah, Getting them to sit yeah, down and tell you the yeah, story might be true. the tough part, but, um, but I laugh that's about true. it. And, and even I, I think for some of the, um, some of the Marines that I've, I've served with, it's, it's kind of funny to go out and see on social media every once in a while, the things we talk about now that we kind of bring back Facebook memories or bring up, you know, photos of, of when we were on deployment or whatever, that you would never see. You you would never see mm-hmm. these kind of things in the era before social media. And as much as I may like to say terrible things about social media, um, there's times that I've seen people share photos that I'm like, I didn't know those photos existed, you know, or I'll see, you know, at times some of the the gunnies and mash sergeants I work with, I see really young Lance Corporal Jones, you know, I see, I see these photos yeah. that their wife shares, you know, on their birthday. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that photo existed. Um, so it's, yeah. I, I, that's one of the good things for social media, especially in the military environment. And, and for me is I'm definitely not a historian. I'm a amateur historian at best. Um, but it's, it's cool to go back and to dig through and, and see the rest of the story. I, I forget, um, I forget which one of my Marines it was, but they were posting photos from when we deployed to Tazar Hungary for uh, Operation Allied Force. And I have photos taken at the same time, but from different locations. And so it's just funny, you know, so it's, oh, it's wow. me taking photos. Yeah. My, my photos are taken as I was walking to the aircraft and getting ready to go fly. And this Marine was out on the line taking photos of the same people, same cranials. And I'm laughing because I, I recognize the names on cranials and everything, but it's literally the same event taken from two different perspectives. So it's, it's cool to, to dig up things like that um, now with social media, aside from all the BS on social media. <laughs> All the crap you right, have to dig yeah, through. Yeah. What were some of your other favorite uh, parts putting the the book together? Uh, I, I wouldn't call it favorite, but I found it the most uh, interesting was uh, uh, compiling yeah. the accidents, oh, yeah. uh, the information behind the accidents. And I had to file a freedom of information request through the Navy to get those um, yep. accident well, reports. I wish you, I nearly spit out my coffee and, when I was reading through the introduction and said, yeah, and I got uh, information from the Naval Safety Center. I'm like, I can't get information from the Naval Safety Center. <laughs> and I work inside safety programs. Yeah. So yeah, good. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you got. Uh, well, it, it was a double-edged sword. Yeah, I got the reports, but uh, the the meat of what I wanted to find out, the cause of the accident. Yeah. I was, was about to say, in most cases, most they probably these. redacted that out of it. Yeah. I said, you know, you got to be kidding me. So, and, uh, so I did the best I could. And one I was especially interested in was, uh, it involved two officers that I knew, uh, Martha, Johnny and Hill. Um, I had just, 
I was discharged in June of 79. And in September of 79, the squadron had deployed to Yuma and they were uh, killed in, mm-hmm. a, in an accident during a uh, simulated dogfight. And um, reading the accident reports, um, right. it wasn't their fault. Um, I don't know of the official ruling on that, but uh, there was problems with that aircraft. After it had been uh, right. worked on at NARF, been reworked and updated. And apparently there were some issues yeah. with the NARF yeah. work. Well, and uh, that may have led to the yeah, engine absolutely. failure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's an interesting thing. I think a lot of people – well, I shouldn't say I think. I know um, because I, I get in arguments with some very good friends of mine that are in aviation but not from a true full aviation background uh, like, like you and I are. And they don't understand um, the level of candor that is in a, the, really the true mishap report, the, not, the, not what's published, not what's sent to the press, not what's given to the families. And, and all yeah. those reports are for all different purposes. But the level of candor in, in a Navy and Marine Corps mishap report is usually extremely high. And, and that's also kind of the reason they sometimes get redacted um, because the intent mm-hmm. is to call it as it is and say exactly what failed, why it failed uh, and how to get better. Uh, and, and that's not always something you want to read. I mean, I know uh, the, right. the mishaps that, that I unfortunately had to be the safety officer on that. There's, there's times that you, you don't want your, you hate having to call out mistakes that your buddies or that your friends made, but you don't want people to make the same mistake again. And so that, that level of candor in Naval aviation um, is huge. And I know obviously the air force has their, their own variant of it. They do things slightly differently than the Navy and Marine Corps uh, for their mishap reporting. But for people who've never actually dug through a real uh, Naval Safety Center mishap report, you would be amazed at the level of detail it goes into about the maintenance on the aircraft, the logbooks on the aircraft. What, oh, did, yeah. what did the air oh, crew yeah. eat the day yeah. before? Did they get any sleep? You know, and so we're used to that, seeing that kind of yeah. stuff. But um, the inspection oh, yeah. of the yeah. debris, uh, every yeah, yeah, that was. I said, "Holy cow!" I'm well, reading all that stuff, but okay, I get to the assessment and. You see a big black <laughs> box there. So what, what can you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and well, I can understand why the, the Marine Corps or the Naval Safety Center undoubtedly did some of those things there. I think by law, they're constrained about some of that. But it's um, – I think when you – when you get to read through those reports, it's really a, a peek behind the curtain into naval aviation. And you realize that, you know, the there's – we used to always talk about the Swiss cheese methodology. There's 10,000 things that can go wrong. You just don't want enough of them to line up that it, it causes a mishap. Um, and you, and you really get to right. see that in a lot of those reports. All right. Well, anything else you really want to cover in the history of the book? I know it's, it's kind of a, it's a bridge. It's going between your first effort with uh, the world war two history and then following on into the uh, 91 and beyond era. Um, but uh, anything you really uh, want to draw out of the book? Uh, no, not really. Uh, anybody can find it on any bookstore, uh, online or, op- or brick and mortar store, and uh, you can order it through the publisher. Absolutely. So, Go look yeah. for Keeping uh, the Peace, yeah. uh, and it's a history of VMFA 251 in the Cold War years. Uh, where can people contact you on the Internet? Well, they can contact me through my website at stephenkdixon.com. Awesome. That's the easiest way to get in touch with you and drop yep. you a line there, fill out the comment sheets and say, uh, 
here's my question or here's some other interesting information I have. Uh, what are your plans besides uh, writing about 251? Any other topics or any other uh, book ideas burning through your brain right now that you can share at least? <laughs> no, no, not right now. My, my goal is to finish the third volume and then um, on top of that, doing my other game designs. So I got enough to keep me busy yeah. for the next couple of years. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Yeah. Keeps, keeps us all off the streets and out of yeah. trouble. Um, well, awesome. Yep. Well, Steve, thanks for talking to us tonight. I really appreciate it. It's uh, always good to talk about books and not just about games and pushing cardboard counters or little miniature airplanes around, uh, but to talk about a lot of the research and the information that goes into to building uh, a good history and a detailed history, uh, not just kind of a uh, a cursory look at the uh, the operations of a squadron. So it was it was funny to for me to read uh, Keeping the Peace, but it was also realizing that you had done a heck of a lot of work with command chronologies and other documents because it has that level of detail, which is which is really good for me to see in yeah. a in a book. So thanks for writing it. I really appreciate it. I know I know all the T bolts out there will be appreciative as well. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you, thank you. So yeah, uh, so I hope it sells well. I'll find out when I get my first royalty yeah, check. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully, people here on the podcast will go out and check it out. Uh, and then as you start working through the uh, the next uh, book for the T bolts, then uh, they'll support you there as well. So thanks for being on the podcast. It was yeah. great to talk to you. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. Well, I'd like to remind all of our listeners to go out and like and uh, support the podcast, review us, uh, tell other people how terrible we are. We are the worst historians, and you should never listen to our podcast. Because strangely, all the people that like the podcast say that's what they heard from their buddies. So anyway, uh, don't believe your friends. Listen to us uh, and like and review us. And we will talk to you in the future. So keep climbing for advantage. Climbing for advantage.